physics world. As a teenager, the science journalist Amanda Gefter had a rebellious streak. But unlike most teenagers, the target of her rebellion wasn't her parents. It was mathematics. I had just read something about the continuum um, of the number line and this idea that like between any two numbers, there's an infinite number of numbers. And this just made me like completely suspicious of the whole concept of a number. Gafter's mother was a math teacher, but when she tried to help, it didn't go well. I just kept saying to her, you know, like, I'm not doing any of, you know, I'm not going to find this area until, you know, you explain to me how you get from one to two. Gefter explains that when she was a high school student in the 1990s, she had a conscientious objection to mathematics, and she didn't take any physics classes at all. But when she was 15, Gefter had a conversation with her father that changed her mind and her life. It began with a question. Her father asked her, how would you define nothing? I'm Margaret Harris, Physics World Reviews Editor. And for this edition of the Physics World podcast, I've been speaking to Amanda Gefter about her journey from math-defying teenager into physics-obsessed adult. She's written about this journey in her book, which is called Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn. In the book, Gefter describes how the conversation she had with her father about nothing morphed into a quest to find out what modern physics has to say about the nature of reality. During this quest, the Gefters, father and daughter, read hundreds of popular physics books, eventually filling a whole room with them. Their favorite author was the physicist John Wheeler, and after a few years, during which Gefter graduated from high school and earned a degree in creative writing, she spotted an opportunity to meet Wheeler in person. I was 21 years old at the time, and I was working as sort of like a assistant in a at a bridal magazine, and um, and I found out that this big conference was happening in Princeton in honor of John Wheeler's 90th birthday, and it was sort of like all the leading physicists were going to be there, and they were sort of going to be talking about, you know, these big questions in physics and the nature of reality, because, you know, that's what Wheeler was really all about. And so, so I just, I read about this upcoming conference, and I was like, you know, I have to be there. And so I had got this idea in my head that I would call and, and claim to be a journalist, which was, you know, not true at the time, and um, say that I needed two press passes to come cover this conference. And um, and so my dad and I, like, show up at this conference, and we get, you know, we have these two press passes, and and we got to, you know, to listen to all the talks, and we got to go in the press room and interview all the physicists, and we got to meet Wheeler at the end. Their meeting with Wheeler was brief, but Gefter says it was still incredibly important for their quest. Wheeler had talked a lot about the role of observers in um, physics and in the nature of reality. And, and so he had this idea that he kept grappling with that somehow observers play a role in like creating reality. Um, but obviously, like the sort of the immediate question that you would ask is like, OK, but if observers create the reality, like where did the observers come from? The observer problem was crucial, Gafter realized, because if observers in different reference frames disagree on what they observe, then in some sense, what they're seeing must not be real. You know, in Einstein's theory of relativity, you know, his big insight was that space and time individually turn out to be relative to an observer's reference frame. But this unified four-dimensional space-time remains invariant in, in the theory. And you know, my father and I, in our quest, were looking for these types of invariants because when physicists 
they don't always say this explicitly, but when they're talking about, you know, when you ask the question, what's real? What are like the ultimate ingredients of reality? You know, the answer is anything that's invariant or observer independent. One of the first things that Gefter and her father learned is that particles, which we tend to think of as being pretty real things, aren't actually invariant. At least, not always. Like, if you say, what are the sort of ultimate building blocks of all the stuff around you? Particles just seems like the right answer. And I started studying um, Stephen Hawking's work on black holes and this idea that that black holes radiate. And what was really, really interesting was to realize that these particles of Hawking radiation are not invariant. Um, so if you're an observer outside the black hole, these particles exist. And if you're an observer inside the black hole... Um, or falling into the black hole, they don't. And so this took the very notion of particle and showed that that this is not an invariant concept. And, you know, the reason that these particles exist for one observer and not another is because the actual vacuum of the universe is different in these different descriptions. With particles crossed off the list of invariants, Gefter began asking physicists about other possible invariants, using her new disguise as a journalist. One of her favorite interviewees was Lenny Susskind, a physicist at Stanford University. Susskind's work on black holes convinced Gefter to cross another big item off her list of invariants. Space-time. So space-time was like a natural thing to put on the list. You know, that's, that's Einstein's invariant. And the reason we ended up crossing it off at some point was that I learned about Lenny Susskind's notion of black hole complementarity. Um, and this basically said, you know, if you fall into a black hole and somebody's watching from the outside, from this outside perspective, you never cross the horizon and you just sort of get burned up by the Hawking radiation and sort of frozen on the horizon. But you remain, you know, all the information contained in your body remains outside the black hole. But from your reference frame, you sail right through the horizon with no problem and you can, you know assuming the black hole is large, you can live for a very long time, you know, inside the black hole. And so you have this very strange, it's like Schrodinger's cat, like times a million, you know, where you are both like sort of dead outside the horizon and, and alive and well inside the black hole at the same time. And, and so essentially what all of this means is that the very notion of like location in space time is not invariant. By this time, Gefter's disguise as a journalist was looking increasingly real, at least from an outsider's reference frame. She'd published numerous articles in scientific magazines, and she eventually worked as an editor at New Scientist. But in her own reference frame, she still felt like she was, as her book's title puts it, trespassing on Einstein's lawn. I asked her whether she thought she suffered from imposter syndrome. Yeah, I do. I mean... I actually was an imposter, you know, I was pretending to be a journalist. And and so I think like that feeling, because that's how it started, like I think that feeling in a sense never went away. And so because in my mind I was doing the, the journalism, like the journalism was a means and not an end. It was always like in my mind, like this front for this thing that my dad and I were doing. And so, you know, obviously like eventually the more and more I was sort of in it and the older I got, like that feeling, you know, went away, but it never went away completely. When I asked Gefter whether her lack of traditional physics training had been a problem, though, she was more equivocal. I think 
I made it harder on myself in the sense that like when you learn it the traditional way, like there's a logical order to how you learn things um, that makes sense. And when you're just trying to learn it on your own and you don't even know what it is you need to be learning, um, it, it can take this very like circuitous route. I mean, I learned Newtonian physics like so long after I learned, you know, relativity and quantum physics. So, but on the other hand, I was able to just pursue the parts that were most fascinating to me. And then, you know, as soon as you get into any one area of physics, you know, it eventually becomes apparent that you need to know all the other areas because, the, you know, it's one reality and it's all interconnected and you can't really like separate it out. Some people have actually suggested that, that physics teachers might want to, to teach, maybe not by sort of giving their students completely free reign, but by starting with the, the really fascinating, fun, uh, confusing, uh, exciting concepts like quantum mechanics and relativity, rather than starting with the sort of the the very orderly Newtonian world. I think that would make all the difference, to be honest, because I think about this a lot. Like, when you, especially in the U.S., like, if, like, you don't get to any of that stuff until, you know, much later in college. And at that point, like, you have to have decided that you want to study physics, because it's not like, it's never a requirement to learn relativity or quantum mechanics or any of these things. And so, so in a way, if like our system sort of selects for the types of thinkers who find the more boring stuff interesting, and like of course those are the thinkers that like are needed in physics, and you know maybe they're learning some of the cooler stuff on their own, and that's why they're pursuing it. But but in general, like I, I think by doing it in that order, you sort of weed out the more creative thinkers who would be more engaged by the the you know the cooler, more bizarre types of. Of physics, and when you look at sort of the greatest physicists in history, like they tend to be these very creative, almost more artistic in a certain way, um, you know, very sort of rebellious, independent thinkers, and and so you know, I always worry that the the order in which we teach it sort of weeds out the exactly the type of thinkers that we need in physics. Gefter says she's actually pretty content with having been weeded out back when she was rebelling against geometry in high school. The reason, she says, is that she never actually wanted to do physics. She only wanted to learn about it. But is it possible to learn about physics without ever getting to grips with the math behind it? I think we can all agree that you can't do physics without knowing the math. But then the question is, okay, can you understand physics without the math? And and I've come to learn that I think the answer to that is is yes. You know, when you translate from mathematical equations to English, you know, which is what science writers do, there's just not a one-to-one correspondence. So inevitably, some specificity is lost in that translation, right? There's no question about that. But then you could also ask, you know, is anything gained? And I think there really is, because mathematics, like what makes it the right language for physics is that it's as precise a language as you can have, right? There's no ambiguity. And how does mathematics get so precise? Well, it gets so precise by stripping away any meaning. It's structure, it's scaffolding, you know, it's like form without content. And so when you translate from the math into natural language, you lose that precision, but what you gain is the meaning that had been stripped out. And so, you know, often mathematical understanding can be this sort of crutch for people. Um, You know, it's like this, this old expression, shut up and calculate, People like doing physics, like in, you don't have to step back and say, what does all of this mean? You can just sort of keep calculating and say, well, it works, you know, so that's that. But when you don't have the mathematical understanding to rely on, you have to say, what does this really mean? And I think in a way that's been 
an advantage um, for me. I mean, it, you know, there, it's definitely a detriment to not have the mathematical background and be able to have that precision. But on the other hand, it like forces you to really like interrogate these conceptual questions on a deep level. And so there's this trade-off, like mathematics is very precise, but natural language is where meaning comes in. And I think, you know, ultimately what I wanted out of this, you know, was the meaning of all of it. That was Amanda Gefter, going beyond shut up and calculate in searching for the real meaning of physics. Her book is called Trespassing on Einstein's Lawn, and you can read a review of it and many other excellent physics books on our website, physicsworld.com. For now, though, that's all the deep thoughts we have time for. I'm Margaret Harris, and thanks for listening to the Physics World podcast. Physics World.